So what's in a name? How does our name identify us? According to court records filed in Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, 44-year-old Gary Matthews petitioned the court to have his name legally changed to Boomer the Dog. In his petition, Mr. Matthews stated, I've been known as Boomer the Dog by friends in the community for more than 20 years. I want to bring my legal name in line with that. Judge Ronald Folano denied Mr. Matthews' name change request, arguing that it caused too much confusion. Judge Falano's decision included the following example. Petitioner witnesses a serious automobile accident and calls 911. The dispatcher queries as to the caller's identity, and the caller responds, this is Boomer the dog. It's not a stretch to imagine the telephone dispatcher concluding that the call is a prank and refusing, therefore, to send an emergency medical response. I am denying the petitioner's request. The judge concluded the memorandum by observing, although the petitioner apparently wishes it were otherwise, the simple fact remains that he's not a dog. A person's name identify who you are. A person's identity is often wrapped up in our names. As followers of Christ, we have a new identity. We have a new name. The name given to us And our day is the name Christian. I am a Christian. The world, unfortunately, the word Christian is given to lots of people in lots of ways today. Many people are called Christian if you're part of a certain political party. In many countries, in Europe and South America, political parties actually have the word Christian in their name. Often being called a Christian is something that happens to you because you were born in a so-called Christian country. Much of the world thinks that everyone in America are Christians because they are taught that America is a Christian nation. Being called a Christian is often something that happens to you because of the family that you were born in and the heritage or, or the church you go to. The name of Christian is worn by tens of millions of people who, in fact, are not Christians. It's just a mere title for them, a social title that describes some aspect of their affiliations. That is why in our day, asking someone if they're a Christian is not a good way to find out if they're actual Christ followers. The true meaning of being a Christian is, has been all but lost. But this morning, let's try to reclaim the word a little bit. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ-ian. The word Christian is the name Christ with an adjectival ending borrowed from Latin to denote adhering to or belonging to as in a slave ownership. Christian means adhering to Christ, belonging to Christ, bound to Christ, owned by Christ. I'm a Christian. I adhere to Christ. I belong to Christ. I am bound to Christ. He is my Lord. I was bought with a price. I am owned by Christ. The name Christian identifies me as a follower of Christ. How about you? What's what's your identity? Can you say that you're a true Christian? 
Not a cultural Christian or a social Christian, but a real one. One that identifies with the person of Jesus Christ. One that is marked out by the person of Jesus Christ. One that adheres to, belongs to, is bound to, is owned by Jesus Christ. You're a real Christian? Is your identity united with Christ? See, names are important because they identify who we are. And it is out of who we are that we live our lives. Our identity shapes how we live our lives. Who we are directs how we live. As Christ is our identity, he directs how we live. Let's take a moment this morning to look at our identity in Christ and how it directs how we live. So please turn in your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Be reading verses 1 through 17. It's this great passage. The truth of the pursuit of holiness in our lives. The scripture says, If or since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, now we pray that these, your words, to us, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would challenge us and change us, comfort us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You could easily preach on this passage for many weeks, but I want to give us today the movement of this whole passage, the sweeping movement of the passage 
Just like we saw a few weeks in Romans 6, the Apostle Paul is teaching here on sanctification and pursuing practical holiness in our lives. And just like in Romans 6, Paul starts off talking about who we are. And then on the basis of who we are, how we're supposed to live. The passage has a simple outline. Verses 1 through 4, our new identity is the foundation of our new life. Verses 5 through 11, who we used to be and how we are to stop it. And verses 12 through 17, who we are now in Christ and how we're supposed to live it out. See, our identity drives our action. Our identity in Christ drives our action. You could say that our holiness is a matter of his life and death. It's out of this position of who we are in Christ that we have the strength, the will, the heart to grow and change and to pursue becoming like Christ. So often in the church, we have the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. We most often stress the importance of right actions without stressing the right actions flow from being united with Christ. When we stress right actions over our God-given identity, we tend to, to focus on, have a preoccupation with on outward actions rather than on the substance of our hearts. See, God doesn't want obedient automatons. Kids, if you don't know what that word is, you got your cell phones, you can look it up real quick. He doesn't want obedient automatons. He wants obedient children. See, he wants obedience to flow out of relationship, not obedience that's outward forced and manufactured. Our actions do not determine our identity. Our identity determines our actions. One commentator said, Apart from our union with Christ, every effort to imitate Christ, no matter how noble and inspired at the outset, inevitably leads to legalism and spiritual defeat. But once you understand the doctrine of our union with Christ, you see that God doesn't ask us to attain what we're not. He only calls us to accomplish what already is. He calls us to accomplish what already is. The pursuit of holiness is not an unrealistic effort to just do what Jesus did. It's the fight to live out life that has already been made alive in us through Jesus Christ. Who we are in Christ, united with Christ, through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit directs how we live for Christ. Our new identity is as Christians, as Christ followers, being united with Christ, baptized into Christ. We are in Christ. That's our new identity. Our new identity is the foundation of our lives. It changes everything, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Say it with me. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, that same truth is in our passage today in Colossians 3, 9, and 10. It teaches the same truth. If you look at the end of verse 9 and the beginning of verse 10, it says, you have put off the old self 
with its practices and have, past tense, already put on the new self. See, it's a done deal in Christ. The old has passed away. We have put off the old self. Behold, the new has come. We have put on the new self. We're supposed to put to death, to put away, to put off our old self with its practices because that's not who we are anymore. And we're supposed to put on the new self with its practices because that is now who we are. Our identity changes our actions. It directs our actions. Who we are guides what we do. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. We died with Christ. We're buried with him. We've been raised with Christ into new life. When Christ appears in glory, we appear with him. All the privileges of our union with Christ are given to us in Christ. Since this is so, we must get rid of everything that is inconsistent with our new identity. All that belongs to the old life in Adam. And in addition, we must grow in grace and the hallmarks of our new life in Christ. Do you see how this whole passage works together? Do you see how it outlines for us the very pursuit of holiness that we're longing for? How our identity in Christ leads us to obedience? When we come to understand our new identity as those who are united to Jesus Christ, then our response to the commands of Christ will be, of course, of course I'll do that. Of course, I'll I'll put to death, I'll put off the old sinful ways of my life because I'm no longer that person. I no longer have that old identity I once had. It would be totally inconsistent, totally contrary to live the old way I once did because that's not who I am. And on the positive side, as a response to God's command, we would say, of course, of, of course I'll put on the, the new self which is being renewed in a knowledge and the image of its creator because that's who I am. I've received a new identity in Christ. It would be totally consistent. It would be totally harmonious to live in this new way because that's really who I am. Our identity in Christ will by necessity lead us to put off the old man and put on the new man. Kevin DeYoung states, if he had to summarize New Testament ethics in one sentence, here is how I would put it. Be who you are. That may sound strange, he said, almost heretical, given our cultural's emphasis on being true to yourself. But like so many of the worst errors in our world, this one represents a truth powerfully perverted. When people say, relax, You were born that way or quit trying to be something you're not and just be the real you. They're stumbling upon something very biblical. God does want you to be the real you. He does want you to be true to yourself. But the you he's talking about is the you that you are by grace and not by nature. You may want to reread that last sentence he wrote. (laughs) So we will. So we'll reread the last sentence. But the you he is talking about is the you that you are by grace and not by nature because the differences between living in sin and living in righteousness depends on getting that sentence right. God doesn't say relax, you were born that way, but he says to us, good news, you were reborn this way. You see, one of the highest ethics of our culture 
is to just be the real you. Whatever that is, be authentic to you. Be who you are. Nobody has the right to tell you who you are or what you are doing is wrong when you are authentically being the real you. It's especially taught today throughout our culture in the area of gender and sexuality. A young person especially, all of us, but young person especially hear this. Nobody in the universe wants you to be more the real you than the one who created you. Nobody. As a new creation in Christ, the whole goal is to help us to become us in Christ, to become more and more the real, genuine person that we are. This has been God's plan since the dawn of time. He wants the very best for his children. He wants them to know the greatest blessings, to have the greatest life possible. He wants our lives to overflow with the abundance of his grace and his purpose. No one on earth is more alive, more real, more authentic, more blessed than a follower of Christ living out who they really are. No one is. It is the best possible human life on planet earth. So let me say that again. Look at that sentence. Absorb it. Think about it. No one on earth is more alive, more real, more authentic, more blessed than a follower of Christ living out who they really are. Think about it. Well, let's look again at the simple outline of our passage today. Verses one through four, our new identity is the foundation of our life. Because we're so united with Christ in his death, in his his crucifixion, in his burial, in his his resurrection, because we are in Christ, we're to seek the things that are above. We're to set our minds on the things that are above, on the things of Christ, because we're in Christ, on his purposes, on his plans. As we do that, we become who we are. And then in verses 5 through 11, we see who we used to be and how we're to stop it. Look at verse 5. It says, we're to put to death what is earthly in us. Powerful words. One commentator wrote, we're to put to death the practices of the past. Several images are used in the New Testament to portray Christian living. The believer is a a disciplined athlete who strives to win the prize. The believer is a faithful soldier who endures hardship to please his commanding officer. The believer is a tenacious wrestler engaged in a fierce struggle with a crafty foe. Here Paul tells us that the believer is to be a ruthless executioner who eliminates the behaviors of the past. God is commanding us to execute sin in our lives because that's not who we are. We're not to live with it. We're not to tolerate it. We're not to excuse it. We're to take it seriously and execute it from our lives. Did you know that Jesus taught this very same truth with a very powerful word picture? Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, what do you say? Cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. 
Now, as followers of Christ, we take the Bible literally. So as we literally understand this Bible, we understand that Jesus is using a literary figure of speech that's called hyperbole to emphasize his point. He's not advocating the actual gouging of eyes and the cutting off of our hands or feet. Just think, if that is what he really meant, each one of us in here would be blind and have no limbs. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching graphically, making the point that sin is that serious. It's so serious, we need to amputate it out of our lives. It is so serious, we need to gouge it out of our lives. Sin's not to be coddled or pampered. It's to be eradicated and eliminated and executed. The Apostle Paul and Jesus are giving us a very clear message. Take sin in your life seriously because that's not who you are. That's not who you are in Christ. Colossians 3, 5 Paul then lists a few sins, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list. These aren't the only sins we're supposed to execute out of our lives. What Paul includes here in this first list is an emphasis on sexual sins. We know in studying our Bible and studying the culture of the first century that sexual sins were a major problem. In that time and culture, hey, guess what? Sexual sins are a major problem in our time, in our culture. The focus of this list is on our personal lives. In verses 5 and 6, Paul gives us two reasons to stop committing these sins. He says, because of God's wrath and because that's our past. On account of sins like these, the wrath of God, God's judgment on sin is coming. It is a certainty that God is going to deal with sin, all sin. God is not late. God is not idle. It is certain because of who God is, because of his holiness and his justice and his, and his righteousness and his, and his goodness. It is certain that he's going to pour out his wrath upon sin. God's wrath is a future certainty, but it's also a present reality. It is so real that it's talked about as being on us now. Powerful passage in John chapter 3, verses 35 and 36. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The picture here is that all of mankind is already under the certainty of the future judgment of the wrath of God for our sins. But for those who believe in the Son, the wrath of God has been removed. But for those who do not, the wrath of God remains on them. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. It is only through the blood of Jesus, only through his death on the cross, only by him taking the wrath of God in our place, the just judgment for our sins, that we're saved 
from the wrath of God, from God's just punishment on sins. Why is it incongruous for a true believer of Christ to continue in such sins? Because we've been forgiven of them. Because God has removed the wrath from us and the penalty of those sins. Because Jesus' blood and death and resurrection has saved us from those sins. How can we continue in something that Jesus died and took the penalty for for us? The other reason given is that is that as before we met Christ, these type of sins were our past way of life. It makes no sense to continue to live in sins of our old life before Christ. Because why? Because we're new creations in Christ. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. We're supposed to live in the new. Paul then changes the picture from executing sin to putting off sin. We're to put off the old self. The picture here is changing clothes. It's taking off the dirty, soiled clothes of our former way of life and putting on the new, clean clothes of our new life in Christ. We're to discard the old sinful habits like a set of worn-out, dirty, useless clothes. Again, in verse 8, Paul gives us a representative list of the type of sins we need to put off. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying. Did you notice the difference between these two lists? Whereas the first list is more personal, the second is more interpersonal. These are interpersonal social sins, and they're just as condemned by God as the sexual sins and greed. While we could tend to be more tolerant of sins like anger or slander or lying, God is not. Well, we might more easily make excuses for outbursts of anger or for spreading gossip or for dishonest communication. God does not. How many followers of Christ would never have an affair and might even hypocritically, outwardly condemn those who do and yet never take seriously their problem with anger, never take seriously their, their biting, condemning tongue? Our so-called Christian culture might allow for such erroneous distinctions, but God does not. What a challenging thought. What sins are we tolerating in ourselves that we need to take seriously and start the process of getting rid of them from our lives? Next, in verses 12 through 17, we see the positive, the addition. Because we are in Christ, we put off the old man, but the process of change is a process of replacement. We're supposed to put on the new self. And verse 12 gives us three reasons. Verse 13 gives us one. Why? Because God chose us. Because he made us holy. Because he loved us and forgave us. God chose us before the foundations of the world. We only choose him because he chose us. Not one millimeter of your life warranted for God choosing you. He chose you of his own will and of his own pleasure. You are saved because of him and his choice. New life is yours because of him. 
Another reason is because God has made us holy. He has set us apart from sin and unto himself. We are in him holy because we are God's, accepted in him, justified by his grace. God loves us. We are beloved. He loved us first. Our love for God is but a response to his love for us. He pursued us. He drew us to him. He adopted us into his family. We are his children. God loves us. And God has forgiven us. We're forgiven. Our sins stood as this impenetrable roadblock between us and God. We're totally helpless to get past the reality and the condemnation of our sin. But God took the action. He proactively stepped forward. He forgave us our sins by Jesus' death and resurrection as we responded as we only could by our faith and trust in him. So why put on the new self? Why purposely and proactively and consistently pursue a growing and changing and vibrant life with Jesus Christ? Because how else is one supposed to respond? When you've been chosen, when you've been made holy, when you've been loved, when you've been forgiven, why put on the new self that's being conformed into the image of Christ? Because it is the only response that we can have because of all that God has given to us in our union with Jesus Christ. Paul uses again this metaphor of clothes here. We're to take off the old clothes. We're to put on the new clothes. So from this metaphor, we can see what's a Christian not supposed to look like, what a Christian is supposed to look like. So what's a Christian supposed to look like? Look at these powerful, positive words that's supposed to describe us. What are we supposed to put on? Verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And above all, we're supposed to put on love. What's a follower of Christ supposed to look like? Supposed to look like that. That's what we're supposed to look like. That's the clothes we're supposed to wear. That's the identity that's supposed to be flowing out of us. Why? Because that's what Jesus looked like. That's who he was. That's who we are in our union with him. We need to become who we already are because we already have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Compassionate heart is tender sympathy and heartfelt empathy. Kindness is that friendly, helpful spirit that meets others' needs through good deeds. It's benevolent action. Humility is not thinking of yourself poorly. Rather, it's thinking of yourself properly. In the sight of God, humility is preferring others above ourselves. Meekness is not weakness, it's power under control. To to be meek doesn't mean to get walked over. It means that you have power to overrule, but instead you prefer the other before yourself. Patience is the capacity to bear injustice or injury without revenge or retaliation. When a person is long-suffering, He can put up with provoking people, aggravating circumstances without striking back. That's in us. Bearing with one another is to put up with one another. It's willingly taking the offense, absorbing the wrong without bringing it up. 
It's not just that we're supposed to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, and bear with one another. But we're supposed to do these things as we reach out with forgiveness to one another. We're not just supposed to be like Christ in taking an offense. We're supposed to be like Christ in forgiving the offender. Forgiveness is the logical result of all these other character qualities. It's not enough that the Christian must endure, but we must proactively forgive. And how are we supposed to forgive? What does verse 13 say? It says we're supposed to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. In the vast pool of forgiveness that we wade in because of all of our sins, we are supposed to measure out in the same measure Forgiveness to one another. Our forgiveness is supposed to be Christ-like forgiveness. The standard, as with all of these character qualities, is Christ because we're in Christ. Above all, it says, what are we supposed to put on? Love. Because love binds all these character qualities together in perfect harmony. In the apparel of a believer, love is the belt that connects and holds everything together. Because love promotes harmony. Love brings unity. So how does the clothes you wear right now, the spiritual clothes you are wearing right now, compare with the spiritual clothes that the follower of Christ is supposed to put on? What piece of apparel are you most lacking? See, biblical change is not just not doing wrong action. It is replacing the wrong action with the Christ-like action. Then when we go to the store to buy clothes, we'll often take it in the fitting room to make sure that they fit right. We look in a mirror, we evaluate how they fit. We might even come out of the room and, and ask people that are with us their opinions and how it looks and how it fits. We evaluate our clothes. So this morning, step into this divine fitting room. Look into the mirror of God's word and evaluate. I can guarantee you something. Some of your spiritual clothes needs to be changed. Pick an area where you need to put off the old self and replace it by putting on the new self where you need to to put on Christ's likeness, where you need to start living who you are in Christ. Verses 15 through 17 show us how we're supposed to put on that new character through the peace of God, through the word of Christ, and in the name of Christ. Verse 15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. Rule is a word for an umpire or official at an athletic event. The peace of Christ is supposed to be the umpire of our hearts, especially in our interpersonal relationship, especially in church, this verse is saying, because we're called into one body. One of the ruling thoughts to govern our actions and attitudes towards others, especially towards other believers, is the peace of Christ. Does it promote the peace of Christ? The closer believers are to Christ and his likeness, the closer we are to each other in the church, the more important it is to let the rule of Christ's peace umpire our life. Now it says we're to let the word of Christ dwell in you. One commentator said, the words of the Bible, God's written word, are to dwell in believers. 
That is, by study, meditation, application of the word, it becomes a permanent, abiding part of one's life. When the words of Christ become a part of a believer's nature, they spring forth in teaching and singing. You have no hope of ever becoming like Christ if his word doesn't dwell in you richly. The single most important thing that you can do to help put off that old self and to put on the new self, to become more like Christ, to become more who you are, is to dwell richly in the Bible and the word of Christ so that as you are dwelling richly in it, it will dwell richly in you. You really want to be like Christ? Have you accepted your call to be conformed to the image of Christ? Do you really want to become all that your union in Christ has for you? The best way to do that is to dwell in the word, to read it, to teach it, to study it, to sing it, to share it, to do it. The scripture even describes to eat it like it's the sustenance that our soul depends on. And you know what? It is the sustenance that our soul depends on. Next, we'll do everything in the name of Christ. Not some things, not most things, not Sunday things, everything. Everything should have Jesus Christ in our life stamped on it. Who we are in Christ, united with Christ through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit directs how we live for Christ. Our new identity is the foundation of our lives. It changes everything. Therefore, since we are in Christ. We are new creations. Behold, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come for us. We're supposed to to put to death, to put away our old self with his practices because that's not who we are anymore. We're supposed to live as new creations in Christ in this new self with all those positive attributes like Christ because that's who we are in our union with him. Our identity changes our action. It directs our actions. Hey, Christian, live like who you are. Let's pray. Father, we come before you so thankful for the power and the clarity of your word. So thankful for how it changes our thinking, how it illumines truth in our minds and hearts. So thankful that the Holy Spirit, the divine author of the word, takes that word from our ears and into our hearts and challenges us and changes us. We have not come in here today to leave the same people that we came. We have come in here today to change through the power of the Holy Spirit, to learn to be who we are. I pray that for us. Lord, it's not just outward actions. It's the inward substance of our hearts. Lord, change us today. Now, as the instruments play, I just want you to take some time this morning and evaluate 
evaluate. Maybe you need to take out a pen. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to write some things down. Evaluate your clothes. Go into that room and evaluate. Are you still wearing the sinful clothes of your old self? What is it? What do you need to take off? What do you need to execute? What do you need to get rid of? What do you need to confess? What help do you need to get? What accountability do you need to get to help do this process of of amputating, of gouging out the sin in your life? And then today as you evaluate what clothes you got to take off, evaluate the clothes you need to put on. What do you need to add? Kindness and compassion. All those things of Christ's likeness. What do we need to add because of our union with Christ? Evaluate. Take a few moments.